All righty, we're going to open up our Bibles, and I'm going to ask you to uh, turn in your Bibles and turn your focus to 1 Thessalonians. Uh, we're coming to probably what is the most well-known, most associated portion of Scripture that you have in all of the book of Thessalonians. And uh, we read it for you a little bit earlier, but I want, I'd like to read it for you again. And in reverence to God's Word, I am going to ask you to stand as the Word of God is read. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You may be seated. Well, where, rare is the funeral of a Christian that you attend that these words are not read. At some point in, in the message, at some point in the service, and there's a good reason for that. These words that we are going to look at today, today they are first and foremost words of encouragement. Encouragement to those who are Christians who are still alive concerning their loved ones who have just departed on. Now, by the end of this message, we're going to get into some end times. We're going to be talking about some future events. But before we do, I want to focus first on why this truth was given to the church. Why was it given? Two verses. Verse 13. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. And then verse 18, it says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You know, there's one word that, to tell you why these words were given to us, and that's the word comfort. The heart of this truth given is bracketed by these two verses in verse 13 and then given again in verse 18. He is giving us comfort, and very specifically, he's comforting us about what happens with those Christians who die before the, the Lord's return, before the Lord's second coming. Now, to fully understand what Paul is going to be addressing here, and, and here and also next week, um, I want to set the table uh, for this and, and where these Thessalonian Christians are. Um, for the most part, first century believers did not have the New Testament like we have it today. It wasn't yet canonized. In other words, it wasn't formatted. You know, they didn't have a book that when they met together, you know, pull out your, you know, your Bibles and when they get to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you know, Acts, Romans. They, they didn't have that. They weren't canonized or put together yet. There were individual letters being circulated from one church to another church. So like this church to the church at uh, Thessalonica, it would be, um, you know, copied over. It would be circulated over to the church at Corinth and, and Sencria and on and on. All of these churches were sharing the apostles' letters that were being written to them. But we need to remember... Um, there are still a lot of questions about their faith. 
You know, there are a lot of questions about theory. We open up the Bible and we can look and we can find most of our answers here. But they have a lot of questions by their faith. And again, remember, when Paul went to plant a church in a particular city, he would stay for a period of time teaching every single day concerning the Lord. So for these early Christians, they may not have had the canonized New Testament all put together like we do. They might have had a letter or two or something like that. But what they did have is they had the Apostle Paul who would stay there sometimes up to three years teaching them concerning the word of God, teaching them concerning the gospel and Jesus Christ. Now, and then when the apostles left, often they left others that were traveling with them, other missionaries, they stayed there to help continue teaching them. So concerning this letter and the recipients of this letter, um, Paul was only with at, uh, at Thessalonica for about three weeks. You go to Acts chapter 17. But there is one thing that is clear. He taught these Christians about the coming return of Jesus Christ. That ultimately Christ will come back to earth one day. You know, and, and that's something very clear. We, we know that they were aware of Christ's second coming because it's spoken of all through this book. And we'll give a few verses. First Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. It says, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. And how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and catch it and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescued us from the wrath to come. So they had received a report that, that these Christians were waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. They understood the return. Chapter 2, verse 19. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Very clear they understood it. Chapter 3, verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. So the truth of Christ's second coming is that it could happen at any moment. That being true, we are to live like his return could be now. It could be today, tomorrow, later this afternoon. It could be this week. It could be this year. We're to live like it, it, it can happen at any time. And we are told because of that, like these Christians, they were supposed to be attentive. They are supposed to stay alert in their faith. Mark chapter 13, verse 33, says, Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. And God wants it that way. If we knew when it was going to come, if we knew it wasn't going to come for five years, what would we do? We'd probably procrastinate, and then, you know, like we do so many things, you know, we'd, we'd rush up to the deadline and try to get everything straightened out, but he didn't. We're supposed to live in anticipation constantly. Paul lived in anticipation. Matter of fact, it's interesting in our text that we read how often he uses the word we. We, we. He's not just, hey, you guys need to do this, but he was there with them. He was living in anticipation. Paul lived with this anticipation of Christ's return. But he also lived with the realization that he might die before Christ returned. It says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this means fruitful labor for me. I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. 
So he had the realization that Christ could return any time or he could die. And he was kind of struggling with that, you know, to, to stay and remain or to go to be with Christ. Even further down in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. You know, Timothy is one of his last books that he penned. He says, in the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who loved his appearing. In other words, Paul was getting to the end. He, he knew the end of his life was coming. And maybe the realization that the Lord wasn't going to return in his lifetime was there. He said, I've lived faithful to the end. And I'm going to be rewarded for living my whole life as though Christ could appear at any time. He said, there's a reward for, for all Christians who, who live like that. Now, before we go any further here, I want to apply this just a little bit. You know, Christ's return is not something that you hear a lot about today. I think if we're honest, people are more consumed with navigating, you know, life in this world, when really we should be more concerned with anticipating the life in the next world. I think you'd all agree that the world is becoming more burdensome the more we focus on the world, especially for a Christian. You know, it's, it, it's not the place that you want your mind to be focusing. We need to focus on the war, what the Lord has planned for us. What is to come? And that's what drove Paul. That's what kept him faithful to the very end in his faith. Because he focused. It was like it was right at his fingertips. That reward for, for running that faithful life. So, so again, you have these young Christians, you know, in Thessalonica. I say young Christians necessarily age-wise, but it's a new church. And this new church is living in great anticipation of Christ returning. But over time, months, weeks, you know, weeks, months, years, go on and on, and over time there are believers who begin to die. And that's causing them to wonder what happens to those believers who are not alive when Christ returns. I mean, their whole thing was that Jesus Christ is going to return, and they, they live their lives for that. What happens to those who died? Did they miss it? I mean, again, remember, this is the early church. They don't have all the New Testament and all of it canonized for us, all laid out real neatly there. They have questions. And I'm sure there were other churches, other Christians that were wrestling with the same issue. 1 Thessalonians is one of the first epistles that was written. It was written early in Paul's ministry for the sole purpose of helping Christians to understand what lies ahead. At least this is what this portion was to help them understand what is ahead. And so that's what you have here. You have God beginning to reveal a mystery to the church. What happens to Christians who die? What happens to those who are not here at the second coming? We're going to explain that in just a second. Let me, let me take you real quickly to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Again, Paul says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. Catch this. Behold, I tell you a mystery, that we will not all sleep, but we will be, all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. See, 1 Corinthians was also one of the first writings to the church. And it speaks of uh, the, the resurrection. It speaks of the future 
for believers being a mystery, he says. He says, I want to tell you a mystery. Now, a mystery is something that we don't know what it's about. That's why he's revealing it to us. And he says, I want to tell you about this mystery. God is about to pull the curtain back, and he begins to reveal some truth to the church that it hadn't known before. And that's what's happening in Corinthians. That's what's happening in 1 Thessalonians here. The return of Christ that they understood and that they were looking for, it's what we refer to as the second coming of Christ. It is a time to come when Christ will set up his earthly kingdom. We know the Jews at the crucifixion, the Jews rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah. But Christ is going to return, his second coming, and he is going to have a literal thousand-year reign that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords on this earth. And the Jews lived in anticipation to, of that. You know, we refer to it in, in, in the church, we call it the millennial kingdom, Christ's thousand-year reign, you know, and it all happens before we get to a new heaven and a new earth. So the second coming, let me give you some scripture here. In Zechariah 14.4, speaking about Jesus, it says, In that day, and this is, this is a prophecy of Jesus to come, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east. And on the Mount of Olives will split in the middle from the east to the west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other will, half will move towards the south. So it's very clear Zechariah is prophesying the second coming of Jesus Christ, that he is going to come to the Mount of Olives. It's a mountain range just outside of Jerusalem. He is going to literally come in and with his feet touch the Mount of Olives, it is going to split. It's going to be a powerful event. So this is an event they're well aware of. Well, this should make you mindful in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, when Jesus Christ ascends back into heaven. Remember, it says, they also said, the angels are speaking here. It says, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? I mean, they're watching Jesus being taken up. He says, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Then they return to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. So in other words, he's saying, just like you saw him the ascend from the Mount of Olives, he's going to come back. And his feet are going to touch on the Mount of Olives, and we're back to Zechariah here, where, you know, this, this tremendous miracle is going to happen as that mountain is going to be splitting. This is the event that the early church focused on. This is the event that the Thessalonians were afraid their departed brother and sisters would miss when Jesus Christ came back to rule on this earth. This is the event that God is going to be speaking about in chapter 5 next week, the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're going to be looking at it in depth. But again, remember, 1 Corinthians 15, you know, calls believers death, resurrection, and heaven. They call it a mystery. This is all a mystery. You know, something that we don't know about, but God is going to begin to reveal details to us. And so to that end, in one of this, the first books, the first, you know, church epistles that is written, God addresses his return to earth. And he addresses what happens with believers who died. And he does this by revealing to us something that is going to happen prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. He tells us about a signless event, something that's going to precede Christ's earthly ministry. He tells us about the rapture of the church. 
That event is signless, we say, because there is no prophetic event that needs to precede it. There's absolutely nothing that we can look around and say, wow, that's happened, that, that's happened now, now Christ can you know, take his church at any moment. There's nothing that has to happen. It could happen before we're done speaking here today. It could happen on your way home. It is a signless event that God knows the time, he knows the clock's ticking, and he knows when it's time. And he is going to come and he's going to rapture his church. So, so that's, what, that's, that's the comfort that he is giving them. Because again, they're looking at the second coming of Christ. And he says, I want to give you some comfort about those who have fallen asleep, about even those who are here. And he begins to talk to them about the rapture of the church. So let's get back to our text and focus on revealing this mystery. And let's see why it is such a comfort to us as believers. Okay, verse 16 and 17. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. This is a signless event. He said, At one moment, the Lord is going to come back to take his believers, the Christians, his children, and he's going to meet us in the air. Those who have previously died are going to be first, and then we who are alive and remain, we're going to be caught up together with them, and we're going to be taken uh, to be with Christ. If you have been saved for very long, you've heard you know, talk of this. You've heard of the rapture. Again, it comes from verse 17. The word there, caught up there, in the Greek, it's the word raptura. And that's where we get the word rapture. It is the next event that we await as the church, and it is a signless event. Now, I know, um, you know, end times things and events happening, and it can get really, really confusing. So, so I thought I, I, I'd help clarify things. I have this very simple chart that I've designed, and hopefully we'll put it up there and make it really, really clear for you. Uh, okay, you guys got it? <laughs> All right. No, I actually have a very simple chart. Let's go to the next one here. We're going to make this as simple as we can to you. And again, for some of you, this is a reviewing. But this is a reminder to you because this is the encouragement that, that God wants to give you today. If you go to the far left, we call, talk about the Jewish Old Testament. And, you know, uh, the Jews and Abraham and the descendants of Abraham, all of that, all of the Old Testament. It comes up to the point of the cross and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Um, the crucifixion was always going to happen. Even if the Jews had accepted Christ as their Messiah, you know, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Christ had to die. He was the one that was foreshadowed in all of the, the, the sacrifices of the Lamb. He is the Lamb without blemish and without stain. He was going to be crucified. That, that isn't what, you know, kind of derailed some of these events. It was the Jews rejecting him as their Messiah. As the result of that, we enter into the church age. And that's where we're, li we're living today where there is no Jew or Gentile. Okay? Before the cross, it was all a, a Jewish economy. You know, God was trying to communicate to the world through his Jewish people so people could observe the Jews, observe the truth, observe the way they lived, and God interacted with them and could come to know that he is the true God and, and put their faith and trust in him. And they looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. Now in the church age, there is no Jew or Gentile. Everything has, has changed. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 3 through 7 says this. He says that by the revelation there was made known to me 
the mystery, and, and note that the mystery, as I write, wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. So he's telling them a mystery, something that, you know, it wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. Now, we might look back and see some signs of it, and then, but they had no understanding of what was to come. He says, it was not made known to the sons of man as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, in other words, he said, this is what it is. This is that mystery that has been revealed through the apostles. He said, this is the mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I have been made a minister according to the gifts of God's grace, which has been given to me according to the working of his power. This was a mystery. This time, this church, I just go back to the... the chart, if you would, this, this church age was a mystery, okay? And we wouldn't even understand it had God not pulled the curtain back and revealed it through his apostles what he was doing, a time when there were going to be no Jews and no Gentiles. That time is going to end with what we are looking at here, again, additional information, mysteries that are given to us concerning what happens with the church. The church is going to be raptured. Jesus Christ, this isn't the second coming, Jesus Christ is going to come and meet us in the air and he is going to take us to be with him. That is going to be followed. That doesn't necessarily trigger, but we're guessing it's pretty quick after that, that there's going to be the seven-year tribulation. Um, and that goes back to the Jewish Old Testament times during the tribulation. We're going to see that in a moment. And at the end of that seven years tribulation, Christ is going to return. You know, back to Zechariah, you know, where it says his feet are going to come on the Mount of Olives and the mountain is going to split. That is when Christ is going to return. And then there's going to be the millennium, or the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. And that is, following that, is going to be the new heaven and the new earth. Now, we look at that something, you know, pretty, pretty simple for us to understand here. Um, there was a survey taken, and it says that there are only 60% of those who claim Christ who believe this. Only 60% that look at the end times and say, I believe that. So 40% of people who claim the name of Christ don't believe that. I thought about this. How could that be? Well, you know, in that 40%, you can assume that there are many false Christians. You know, the church is filled with false Christians. Christianity is filled with false Christians, you know, wolves in sheep's clothing. So, you know, there's some of that. Others kind of reflect 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3 and 4, where it says, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And, you know, some may not say it, but we live it like that. Why worry about it? Everything's just been going, plugging along by time. Don't have to worry about it, you know. You know, it's, it's kind of like arguing, I've never died before, so I'm never going to die. You know, that's their argument. Nothing like this has ever happened before, so why should we think it's going to happen? And in one way, they're true. You know, it, it's true. You know, everything has continued as it has in the past until it doesn't anymore. Until in a twinkling of an eye, in a moment, everything has changed. One moment, it's going to be normal. The next moment, it's going to be a vanishing. And everything is going to change. So you've got, you know, you probably have false Christians, you have others who just kind of mock that end times things. And then there are some Christians who see end events happening in different orders. And I, I, I want to be here. I'm not, I'm not here to debate end times and when things happen. Um, I believe 
you know, I can see how God has, has laid it out, and I'm going to lay that out for you here. But I'm, I'm not here to, to, to debate this. This truth that we're looking at here was given for comfort, not for confusion. And so, you know, we're not going to get into some sort of a debate. But I want to give you four strong biblical evidences of the rapture. Because this is the next event, I believe, and I believe Scripture reveals this is the next event that we are looking for. We are looking for a moment in time when God says, come up. And our, the church is taken, the bride of Jesus Christ is taken to be with him. And let me show you just, you know, there are many of them, but I want to give you four real strong ones here. Okay, number one, um, our very teaching in 1 Thessalonians here. If you look at 1 Thessalonians, the end of the chapter, what we've just read here, and then you go into chapter 5, chapter 5 talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ. You know, they're talking about two totally different events here. The end of chapter 4 is one event, and then into chapter 5 is, is a second event. They are clearly two separate events talked about, and it, you can discern that because, you know, here are some of the differences that you have here uh, between the two, between the rapture and the second coming. You know, first of all, Christ comes for his own. At his second coming, he says he comes with his own. And if we're the church, if you're a Christian, that, that's, he's coming with us to rule with him. Christ appears in the air. At uh, the second coming, he appears back on earth. Christ become, comes as a loving bridegroom. Uh, at the second coming, Christ comes as a vengeful warrior, the king of kings. Number four, only his own, his own will see him. In uh, the second coming, every eye will see him. The time of great joy for believers and the saved, you know, the raptures. I mean, we're looking forward to this. Uh, for the second coming, it's a time of great fear for unbelievers and for the lost. It's a secret disappearance. Second coming is a very public appearance. And finally, the focus is on the Lord and his church at the rapture. At the second coming, the focus is on Israel and upon his kingdom. And so we have these two events here, and they're, they're totally separate events. And, you know, and you can't meld them. You've got to say, what are these two events? Obviously, they're two different events uh, that we are looking for. So that's number one. Secondly, Christ's earthly rule his, his second coming to earth, it is a Jewish promise. That is not a promise that was ever given to the church. It was given to the Jews. Um, it is the scepter of King David's descendant ruling. That You know, it's said in uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 32, when the angel went to, to Mary and talking about Jesus, says he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Again, this is a Jewish promise that they would have a ruler upon the throne, and Christ was coming in fulfillment of that. It's a Jewish promise. It is not a, a, a church promise. Um, in Matthew chapter 24, the disciples were questioning Jesus about his return. He says in verse 3, it says, as he was sitting on the mountain of olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? In other words, you know, before Christ's crucifixion, you know, his followers who were Jewish were asking him, when are you going to come back? You know, when, when are these signs all going to be taking place? It was very Jewish in nature. And Christ's second coming is a glorious event. But his second coming is not the event that the church is looking for today. It is the rapture. Third thing, number three, and I'm going to give these quickly to you, we'll go in more in depth next week. Old Testament prophecy supports 
this timeline that we're talking about here. Kind of interesting, um, in Daniel chapter 9, um, Daniel, they're coming towards the end of their Babylonian captivity, you know, the 70-year captivity. And he begins to pour his heart out to God, said, what, what's going to happen with us? You know, here we are living in a foreign country, you know, we're, we're in captivity. Well, in chapter 9, God begins to reveal what he is going to do with the Jewish people, what, you know, what's happening in the future. And he says in chapter 9, verse 24, he says this, he says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and for your holy city. Now, let's just stop there for a second. He says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and for your holy city. So he talks about 70 weeks. Uh, I won't go into a lot of detail, but these weeks, you know, if you multiply it by seven, seven days of each week, you get 490 days. We know that each day represents one year. I won't go into that, but it, 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 it falls into place very well. Each day represents one year. So it says, 70 weeks has been decreed for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgressions, to make an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and the prophecies, and to anoint the most holy place. So he says, this prophecy, this time period that I'm giving you, he says, this is for your people, he's talking about the Jews, and for your holy city, he's talking about Jerusalem. And we're going to look at that a lot closer next week, you know, what this promise is for the Jews in the second coming of Christ. But he goes on in verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And it will be built with, again, with plaza and moat, even in the times of distress. So it talks about until the Messiah comes from the time that you are allowed to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild, you know, the temple from that time until the Messiah comes. It's kind of a poetic way of writing. It says there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So 69 of the 70 weeks are going to happen, or 483 years. Okay? So if you go to Ezra chapter 1, you will see that Cyrus decrees, gives a degree for the Jews, allowing them to go back and to build the, their, their temple again. So from that moment, when they were allowed to go back until the Messiah comes, are going to be 483 years. It says then that at the end of that, Christ will be cut off, he will be crucified, and then the final seven years of the tribulation will, will happen until Christ's return. Verse 26. It says, then after 62 weeks, you know, that, which 62 plus 70, it says the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. This is, the, this is the crucifixion. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come like a flood, even to the end. And he talks about horrible things that are going to be poured out upon the city. Well, we know that as to be the time of the tribulation. So you've got this great timeline that was laid out for Daniel of how these events were supposed to happen. It was supposed to be Cyrus signs a degree to allow you to go back. 483 years later, the Messiah would come and give his life. He would shed his blood for the forgiveness of the sin. The, the Jews would see him as their Messiah and accept him, and there would still be a great tribulation that was going to be poured out upon the people. But at the end of that tribulation, the Messiah was going to return and take the throne of David. But the rejection of Jesus, because the Jews didn't accept him as their Messiah, it stopped God's prophetic clock and enter in the church age a mystery that nobody knew about but God revealed to the apostles and, but God's prophetic clock is going to start 
ticking again. And my guess is it's going to start ticking very soon after the church is removed, and then we're going to go back to the tribulation, and we're going to go back to the times of the Jews. Okay? So the timeline fits what Scripture is talking about here. And fourth, last thing, you want to consider the book of Revelation. We're all very familiar with the book of Revelation and the end times and, and the, the tribulation that it talks about. Um, just, the, just look at the book of Revelation sometime. In chapter 1 through 3, the author freely speaks, John freely speaks about the church. You know, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he talks about the seven letters that he writes to the seven churches and these special messages that he's given to the church. In chapter 1, 2, and 3, the word church or churches appears over 15 times. It's talking about the church. But suddenly then, you get to chapter 4 and verse 1. And it says, John is writing here, and after these things, in other words, after he, he sent these letters to the churches, after these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet, speaking with me, said, come up here and I will show you mu what must take place after these things. After what things? After the church. After the church age, it says a, a trumpet sound is going to sound. What, what did you say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16? A trumpet shall sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised. John is no longer on earth. You know, John is part of the church. John is taken up into heaven. And from there, he begins to see the rest of the tribulation poured out upon the Jews. Daniel's final week that it's talking about here. From chapter 4 all the way to chapter 22, you will not read about the church again. The church is not mentioned. It all goes back to the Jewish times. It goes back to talking about the temple and the sacrifices being allowed and the 12 tribes of Israel. talks about the 144,000 Jewish witnesses. The church is nowhere mentioned until you get to the very end of the book in chapter 22, verse 16, when he's kind of summarizing everything and he says, you know, kind of basically, you know, send this letter to the churches. You know, in other words, to, to let them know what is going to happen. And that's it. So it all fits just so perfectly back that, that the tribulation time is going to be back into the Jewish economy. It, it, it's not no Jew or Gentile. The church is not going to be there. It's not spoken of at all. So when you put this all together, and again, there are many more things that we could put onto this. Um, you know, the glorious rapture of the church, it fits. Um, but again... You know, I'm not here to debate that. This is here to encourage us, and this is here to give us some comfort. And so that's what I want to end with. You know, we've got all these, these things out there, and I'm sure at times, you know, all of this talk about end times, and you've got charts and, 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 you know, dates and prophecies being fulfilled. I'll be honest, it sound, sounds somewhat science fiction. You know, it's, you know, it's mind-blowing to think about these things happening. And so we're supposed to take these events as a Christian, and I'm supposed to live my life. We're supposed to live our lives for this event to come, for the rapture of the church. And, and sometimes that's hard. You know, we want to, and we talk about it, but, but the here and now is so real. How can I be certain about the future? Now, how can I be sure that this is what is to come? I want us to reread verse 14 for you. And this is something that rarely gets spoken of here. Verse 14, again, he's about to give this truth. And he says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep 
in Jesus. Okay? Even if we believe, if you believe that Jesus died and rose again, I mean, did you catch that? He's saying he ties the surety of the Christian's future. He ties the rapture of the church to the surety of these two past events. If you believe in the crucifixion, if you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, shed his blood to pay your penalty, if you believe that Jesus conquered death and Jesus gives us victory, if you believe that, if you believe in the crucifixion and the resurrection, then you can believe in the second coming events of Christ. You can be the, believe in the resurrection of believers who die and us who are still alive and remain to eternally be with the Lord, to be the bride of Christ. I mean, he ties them to these rock solid events of our faith that we are so sure of, that we so know, that have changed our life. He says, if you believe these, bank on it. This is coming. The future events is just as sure as the past events. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.14 says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us to you. The same one who raised Jesus from the dead, the resurrection is sure we are of that, he will raise us as well with him. And then add to that the beginning of verse 15. He goes on and he says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. This we say to you by the word of the Lord. Paul makes it very clear. This is the word of God. This is God's promise that I am giving you. It's not Paul's opinion. It's not his interpretation of events and how he sees things falling. This is God's word revealing a mystery to us. Something that we previously didn't know about. God is telling us this to encourage us for the future so that we can live these events that are so far you know, out of our realm of understanding, and they should be because they're a mystery. They're from God. They're miracles that are going to take place. But we can live our lives by these things because just as sure as we put our faith and trust in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, you can put your faith and trust in Christ's return, that he is coming for his church. He is coming for his bride. So, what does this practically mean for you? How should this change our life from here? You know, we say we're supposed to live our life for this, you know, like Paul, you know, that, you know, that gets to the end of his life and he says, I've, I've lived, you know, I've lived focus on these events here. How can we do that? Well, I want to read just a few verses for you from Second Peter chapter 3. It's speaking about the future events um, that will eventually lead to a new heaven and new earth. It's not specifically talking about the rapture here, but it's talking about end times to come. And he says in verse 14, he says, Therefore, beloved, since you look at these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all the letters speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort. And they do also, as they do also the rest of scriptures, to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, Know that beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and in the day of eternity. Amen.
we're given some instruction. What does this mean to us? Christian, it means be diligent, it says. Be spotless. Be patient in what God is doing. He calls in the scripture, he calls us to be on our guard. You know, don't be asleep. Don't be, don't be deceived by what's going on in the world. Don't be deceived by what p- other people are saying. He calls for us to be steadfast. You know, not, not complacent in our faith. And finally, he says, Christians grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Savior. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray as our worship team comes forward. Boy, Father God, this is a lot. There's a lot of scripture there. My head is spinning, Father. And I guess I I thank you that this is recorded and we can go back and we can look at it slow. So we can digest this. This is way too important. Father, this is essential for me to live faithful today for you. So I pray, Lord, that you will ingrain these things in our heart that you will make us steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, that you will help us to be patient as we wait your return. But God, that we will wait in anticipation and our lives will be different, our lives will be lived different because we believe at any moment you could return. Thank you, Father, for this mystery you've given us today. In thy son's name we pray.